our Buddhist meditation, so following, following from Stephen this morning, talking about meditation. And in a way, looking at the different method, techniques, techniques and traditions, and see in a way, what is it that is common to them? What, how does it make sense, all these different techniques and meditations in the Buddhist tradition? And in a way, I think it could be useful to remember where it started. Like, in a way, you had the Buddha who tried this very specialized ascetic practice of a concentration technique. And he was very proficient at those. But they, in a way, did not give him what he was looking for, the end of suffering, in a way. And so when he left those practices, and decided to do something else after he did the ascetic practice by himself, he actually remembered when he was a child sitting under a rose applewood tree while there were some uh, things happening in the field and just finding this kind of stillness and clarity in that moment, sitting under that tree. And from that, actually, in a way, he did the final eight days, seven, eight days before the Enlightenment. And to me, I think this is interesting. He did many different things, and then he came back to something he remembered, which actually had been very efficacious, he felt. So I think what is important to see in terms that there are so many different techniques, many different traditions, because in a way, already at the time of the Buddha, he suggested many different things, according to conditions, according to people. And then, in a way, each person over time find, found all the things that worked for them. And then they kind of continue to cultivate, to investigate. In a way, what we are, in a way, uh, finding now, 2,500 years later, is in a way all these different people finding things that work for them. I think, in a way, that's why we have what we have now. And even to this day, each person, myself included, <laughs> look, what is it that works for me? What is it that works for other people? And then kind of, you know, everybody developing, in a way, their own thing in some way. So I think one has to see, because nowadays those different techniques and traditions could be really presented as extremely different and opposed and some right, some wrong. I think it's very important to see that all these techniques have come out of the ingenuity, of the intelligence of the practice of people from before. And that actually we are, actually when we sit here, are doing exactly the same thing trying things for ourselves and finding what works. So, what I think is in, in terms of the heart of Buddhist meditation, I think to make a little of a difference, I would say, between what I would call the cultural environment, which sometimes is very close to the practice itself. Because I think in many different countries you have Buddhist tradition and different techniques, and on top of that you have very much a cultural aspect, which often also is sold, in a way, as being part of the practice. 
And just, I mean, this is a minor thing, but I, to me it was so characteristic. When I was in Korea, as a Korean Buddhist in Korea, as a Korean nun, but even as a Korean person, uh, or being in a Korean culture, I was always supposed to wear socks. All the time. <laughs> even if it was 40 degrees outside, you're supposed to wear socks. This is Zen, Korean Zen. <laughs> then you go to Japan, and I went to Japan much later on, in winter, and in Japan, the Zen practice is to not wear socks under any conditions whatsoever, <laughs> even if your bare foot sticks to the frost on the wooden board. So, then I went to Taiwan, and I noticed sometimes there were socks and sometimes they did not. And I thought, ah, maybe they've gone beyond socklessness. <laughs> <laughs> they reached this great stage. And so it was hot, I went barefoot. And I got into trouble. Because I was not supposed to wear socks. But I said, but I see people wearing, being barefoot. They say, ah, only after six. <laughs> In the evening after you wash. Can you be barefoot until the next morning? So, they were not in true sucklessness. <laughs> so, just to show, you know, how it's very interesting how you think that this is Zen, this is Japanese Zen, and actually it's just culture. And to me, my experience meeting women, that was a great inspiration for me, to meet all these different women, all these different traditions, and to see that what they did technically, because I understand that very much, did not make much of a difference in terms of the way they were, in terms of the way they developed wisdom and compassion. The technique itself was not what was important. What seems to be important was the intention, the practice itself, and the sincerity, and in a way doing it in a way that worked in terms of developing wisdom and compassion. So now I want to look at what personally I would say is the heart of Buddhist meditation and define what I would call a Buddhist practice. And this is concentration and inquiry, samatha and vipassana. To me that is the two major, the heart of Buddhist meditation, what defines any, what I would say a med Buddhist meditation that for me would work, would be that the two are cultivated either together, either in tandem, in some way. Because that, I think, is what will make it work. And so I'd like to look now at the different traditions and how they do that. If we take the Tibetan tradition, and Stephen talked about the various, uh, the three different techniques, I mean, two different techniques he mentioned, there was an analytical reflection, the reflection on the preciousness of the human body, on altruism, on death. And again, I think the same thing happened there. You have concentration on a theme, so for 30 minutes or whatever time you sit, you just focus on that and on nothing else. So concentration, which will lead to stability. Then you look at the subject in a different way. You don't just repeat what you saw before, but you really can in a way look differently at it. And so again, here you have concentration and inquiry. Then you have the visualization. 
and the visualization I think is the same. As Stephen was describing, you concentrate on this amazingly co complex sphere object, but again, this is concentration. You hold this in your mind. When you do this, you're not planning, daydreaming, or whatever you're trying to do this. And the inquiry is actually, as Stephen was mentioning, the fact that you imagine yourself in that moment being the Buddha or the Dakini or whatever deity in the middle of the sphere. So the idea of that is that at that moment you have the quality of wisdom, of compassion, of intelligence or whatever. So again, you kind of look at yourself, feel yourself differently for that time. So again, concentration and inquiry. Then there is another technique in the Tibetan tradition, the Maha Mudra, you might have heard about. And again, there are many different ways to do it. But one of the methods to do it, which a friend of mine recommends, is to focus, and I love that idea, focus on the space between the thoughts. That is, I think, very kind of, you know, technical. You sit there and you focus on the space between the thoughts. Interesting technique. And again, the concentration, well, you have to in order to notice the space between the thoughts, you have to focus on the thoughts. So you can focus on what is going on in this moment. And then you inquire, because generally, you know, we have this feeling, the thoughts are just non-stop, and it just goes on. And there the inquiry is to look. Look at the space between the thoughts. Look at it. And so in a way, again, you look at your thoughts in a different way. Then if I look at the Zen tradition, there you have two main traditions, again two very different techniques, and both of them say, you know, one uh, each is better than the other, and there is a debate since the 12th century, and, uh, but I personally don't think it matters very much, and one is a Soto Zen, and it's also known as just sitting or silent illumination. And I would say that is a very kind of a in a way, very kind of demanding technique, though it is, on the face of it, relatively easy. And you just sit there and that's it. You just sit and you don't do anything. You just sit. And in a way, they call it silent illumination. You kind of, you know, let your, let your Buddha nature silently illumine yourself in this moment. But again, I think that just sitting require first concentration. The fact that you just sit, you take the right posture, and you just, in a way, focus on the whole moment. So instead of having one small pointed focus, you have a wide focus. You must, in a way, focus on the whole thing. You just sit in the moment. And I think the inquiry aspect is that the idea is that at that moment, you don't grasp nor reject anything. But in, instead of getting lost in thought, feeling, sound, or whatever, you just remain totally open in that moment and just let things pass through. So again, concentration and inquiry. Then there is um, what I presented this morning, the Korean style, which is also part of the Rinzai tradition, Li Chin Chan, and where there is a use of a question. 
And I would say that the Japanese technique is a little different from the Korean one and from the Chinese one, but I mentioned just the Korean one. And again, you have the same thing. As I was suggesting today, you focus, the, the focus, the concentration is the question, the word. What is it? What is it? That's what you come back to. That's what is the anchor. And the inquiry is the fact that you don't just repeat the question, what is it, what is it, what is it? That there is not much point, but that you really ask the question. In a way, it's like you know, throwing the question into the moment. What is it? In a way, you penetrate the moment in a questioning way. So again, concentration and inquiry. And to me, what is interesting about concentration is that if you concentrate generally within the framework of also the inquiry, when you come back to the object of concentration, you actually come back to the whole moment. You come back to wide open awareness, which then you can see more brightly, more vividly. And then you have the Theravada tradition, and there you have again the Samatha and Vipassana. You have, and even there, you have so many different ways to do the Samatha and to do the Vipassana, to do the concentration and to do the inquiry. I mean, you have the Masi method where you kind of note everything that goes through your mind. You have all the technique where you just say Budo, 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 recite the name of the Buddha with a, with a light. You, I mean, you have different ways to do the breath. In some techniques, they tell you to do the breath long, to do the breath short. In some others, they tell you just let the breath as it is. I mean, even then, you have many different. Then you kind of listen to the sound, you can notice the feeling tone. And of course, as I will present tomorrow, you can do the four, one of the four Brahma Viharas, which is to do loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity. And so if I just take Metta, for example, because we've talked a lot about uh, concentration and inquiry in terms of awareness, so it doesn't seem to me I have to go over again that. I have to talk about it quite a bit. But if we take Metta, and in Metta meditation, loving-kindness meditation, you recite sentences. May I be happy, may I be at peace, may I be free from suffering. Then first you look in terms of yourself, then you open to other people, may you be happy, may you be at peace, may you be free from suffering. And then you go to various categories, people in this room, things that are alive outside this room, uh, people you enjoy, you know, you like, people you feel neutral, people you have difficulty with, and then all beings. And I mean, you can have many different categories. But what is interesting there is that actually the concentration is the fact that you come back again and again to the world. May I be happy, may I be at peace, may I be free from suffering. May you be happy, may you be at peace, may you be free from suffering. So that in a way, that is a focus. That's what kind of helps you to come back. And at that level, I would say meta meditation is a very good concentration technique. It's a very powerful concentration technique. But it is not only that, because when you say the word, what you try to do is in a way to 
open yourself to the human being in that moment. So that it be myself, or if you think of other people, you try to go beyond the image about them, what you like, what you dislike, and to reach the human being, and to feel about yourself and others differently. To kind of really, in that moment, wish them well. Wish them to be happy. And to me, that is inquiry. That is, in a way, questioning the way we feel about people. Because generally, the people we like, well, if they don't get too much happiness, fair enough. Yes, I wish them to be happy. But, you know, not too much because then I don't get enough myself. Because we have a tendency to see it as a little kind of, you know, everybody gets its little bit, its little share. But I think in this, it can really say, yeah, you know, I wish happiness for myself, but also I wish happiness for others. And I think that's what is interesting with the sympathetic joy. In the sympathetic joy, the rejoicing, there you work on actually enjoying the fact that you are happy, but enjoying the fact that other people too are happy. And to kind of realize that happiness and joy is not kind of a kind of you know a certain amount of commodity, but that actually if you rejoice at somebody's happiness, you too are happier. Instead of kind of you know feeling a little resentful that they're happy. So in a way again it is kind of questioning, kind of kind of shifting. And this is the thing about the inquiry, is to as Stephen has mentioned several times, to shift the way we feel, the way we feel which stops us, which blocks us, which constrains us. So at that level, this is very much why you have the two together. And so I would say generally, in anybody's meditation, for it to really, in a way, be effective, I would see that it would need to have the concentration for the stability, the quietness, the stillness, the spaciousness, and the inquiry, the looking deeply, the questioning, so that it, it kind of shifts. It's kind of what is a transformation element in terms of the whole structure of our being. And in that way, we kind of meditation, I think that we can develop what I would call creative awareness. So no matter what technique you do, if it really is efficacious, I would say you develop a creative awareness and that's what will make a difference in your life. And what is interesting there is that there seems to be this kind of various shift along this creative awareness. And I think what we do in meditation is we cultivate the power of the creative awareness so they can become active in our lives. And so I think, in a way, there is kind of this um, cycle that at the beginning, we do meditation, we start to develop a bit of awareness, and so we see ourselves at the end of what I would call a negative cycle. We go through the, I don't know what you do, the sadness, the heaviness, the judgment, the anger, whatever it is, you get kind of into this kind of negative cycle. And you kind of go through the cycle, you're totally kind of going around in the washing machine, and when the cloth is washed, you kind of suddenly see, ah, I did this. You know, I kind of got really upset, or really sad, or really lost, or whatever it is. And so, in a way, you see it at the end, and it becomes clear. Ah, this has happened. 
I went through this cycle. And then over time, with the awareness and meditation, then we start to find ourselves in the middle of it. And I think this is where it's the hardest. Because you're very aware of what you do. Like I remember, I used to live in a community which is a little stressful. And time to time I would wake up and I would say to Stephen, I am angry. And he would say, so that really felt, you know, kind of boiling. And he would say, but what about? And I would say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, but and it was very interesting. I was very aware. There was all this stuff going on. And it was, and it was very physical to kind of see. And I could see it. And the fact that I saw it did not make a great difference. Apart that because I was aware of it, then it would be easier then to not kind of go and get uh, kind of fights with people or whatever. I could kind of be a bit more restrained because I knew. So I think it helps already, but it's a little frustrating because you, you see yourself in the middle of the cycle and you really can't do much about it. And then, as you do more meditation, then you start, and the power of the awareness starts to kind of coagulate in a way, you start to see yourself at the beginning of it. You start to see the trigger. And that, I think, it gets very interesting. When you start to see the triggering condition, what is it that triggers whatever state you get lost in? And long ago I used to have this uh, state where it took me some time to get it. Like if Stephen went away for a week or two to teach somewhere or do whatever, and then would be on my own, and I would go into this real kind of deep funk, you know, and he would phone me, and you know, how are you? I said, and you know, it was kind of not very helpful in terms of uh, relationship. And then I thought, wait a minute, every time he goes, I go into this funk. So, you know, what is what goes on here? And then I started to see that it started with just two thoughts. I can't, now I can't remember the thought, but it, it started with these, there would be these two thoughts, and then I would go into what I call the pull me cycle, which then is kind of, you know, pull me, pull me, pull me, da 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 da. <laughs> and so then I started to see the two thoughts, and then, okay, at the beginning, then I would do something else. I would kind of, you know, distract myself, go for a walk, read a book anything but kind of have the opportunity to go down into the Pumi cycle. And I only had to do this twice and now I can't even remember those thoughts. It's gone totally. So I think it's when you start the power starts to you kind of see ah that's the trigger, the conditions plus the thing within ourselves. And then and I think that's when it's the most beautiful in a way when you catch yourself before you're going to go into the cycle. And that is very interesting. You go to into your pattern, whatever pattern it is, and suddenly you see yourself going to do that. You're going to get angry, or you're going to get kind of resentful, or you're going to shut off other people, whatever it is. And suddenly you see, with the power of meditation, that you have a choice. And what is interesting at that moment is that you're totally afraid. How can I do something I have never done before? For the last 30 years of my life, last 40 years of my life, I have done this. How can I do something I have never done before? And I think that's why we don't change often. We prefer the pain of what we know 
than the no pain of what we don't know. And I think the power of creative awareness is to see, oh, let's try. One, just one, let's try to do something different. And so you can go beyond the fear. I think the power of creative awareness helps you to go beyond the fear. And you do something different. And you find, you feel this utter peace and you think, why didn't I do this before? But because you could not. You could not see it and you did not have the power to go beyond the fear. So I would say personally, that's what the heart of Buddhist meditation is about to cultivate the concentration and the inquiry so that we can develop the power of creative awareness. Then what I wanted to do briefly, before going through my pile of notes, (laughs) is to look a little, because this has been brought up a bit a few times, a little the role of the teacher in the Buddhist tradition, because I think this is very much connected to to the heart of the Buddhist meditation. And I think it's very important to see that there are three types of teachers in the Buddhist tradition. You have the teacher as a guru, the teacher as a master, and the teacher as a spiritual friend. And I think this is three very different types, and in the same way with the techniques, is which one is going to work for you, which one is going to be fruitful, which one is going to help you. I don't think one is better than the other, I mean, I do think one is better than the other, but some people find others better. What can I say? So the first one is a guru, this you find mostly in the Tibetan tradition, and so that's what Stephen was talking about. Like in that first reflection you work on, in uh, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there is all the looking at the great attribute of the teacher. And very much to see the teacher as a Buddha, and in the guru idea, this idea of surrender, of devotion to the teacher. And it can be a good way to work, of course. The only problem, it is, it is a little dangerous to totally surrender oneself to somebody else. And His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, there said, before you take somebody as a guru, check them out for five years. And then if you're sure that, yes, you want to work with them, then go for it. But be a little careful to take, you know, anybody that you don't really know as your guru, because it is a very strong and very, in a way, surrendering relationship. Then you have the teacher as the master. And this you find very much in the Japanese Zen tradition. And this is where you have very much the relationship of the master and the disciple. And that the master there is to test you, to check you, to kind of, in a way, make you prove yourself. So it's a kind of, in a way, a constant challenge, a constant kind of, you know, pulling the rug under your feet. And so it's generally very intense and very close relationship. And in a way, the question is, do you want to do that? Do you want to, in a way, be put under this strong pressure? Some people thrive on it, and some people it's really not helpful for them. And also, that generally requires great loyalty. Like, generally, if you have a teacher in the Japanese and tradition, you must stay with that teacher. It is very difficult, in a way, to leave the teacher, because there is that intimacy, that intensity, that loyalty, that, you know, they kind of there to kind of push you to the last 
moments. Again, one has to see, is it what I want to do? Then there is a third one, which is the teacher as a spiritual friend, and that's what you will find in the Korean tradition and also in the Theravada tradition. You have that, the teacher as a spiritual advisor. So somebody <coughs> who is experienced, somebody who can give you instruction, encouragement, also example, inspiration, but who is more like a guide. It kind of goes alongside you as a guide. He's not a guru, he or she is not a guru, he or she is not a master. He's not there to test you, but he's there to help you on the way, to inspire you, to guide you, if necessary. But I think in the end, as Stephen mentioned it, the teacher is there to empower you. I think this is very important. The teacher is not there to disempower you, he's there to empower you to find your own teacher, to really uncover your potential. And I know for myself that's where I really saw it. When I was in Korea and during the free season I would go to visit various uh, great nuns or great monks and there was this great master I used to go to. And so I used to go to see the master and I had to walk far away. He was in a little hermitage and I used to bow to him. And then one day I bowed to him and said, Master, Master, what should I do? make my questions vivid. And so the master just sat there. So, so. And he did not say anything. So I kind of, you know, master, master, don't you want to say something? <laughs> and finally, he looked at me and said, you know already. And that was that. That's all I was going to get that day. So about back and then I got out of the room and as I was going back on my way I thought you know I felt a bit short tense you know I came all this way to see him you know an hour to walk out you know and that's all I get you know you know already and then I thought but it is true I know already what I need to do you know, I don't need to wait for him to tell me I knew what to do. The problem is that I had to do it. The knowing, actually, I did know. The thing was to really do it myself. And that's where I saw the importance, in a way, of the inner teacher. To really, in a way, know for yourself. To kind of have trust in your inner teacher. I think that's what a teacher needs to help you to do. So that's what I wanted to kind of mention this morning. And now I'll go through the notes because they, they cannot, can be part of the talk in a way. So first is a little, uh, kind of the short answers were. Uh, then the question was, what is the intention behind a bar and placing hands together? Yes. Is it important? Is it a necessity? I would say it is not necessary and it is not terribly important, but it's more kind of like, it's between a cultural and if it has some value for you. This is the thing. Whatever you do in terms of gesture of a religious nature, I think it needs to have a meaning for you. And for myself, I mean, this is in Korea, I kind of, you bow uh, a lot. And in Korea, you generally bow when you leave a room where there is a Buddha statue or Bodhisattva statue, and you bow when you enter a room where there is a Buddha statue or Bodhisattva statue. 
because in a way they are symbol of your own Buddha nature. So as you bow in, as you enter the room, you're bowing to the, to the Buddha nature within yourself. And in the same way, in the Korean tradition, they don't do the little bow at the end of the meditation. This is Japanese. But I think it's quite nice, actually. <laughs> and so, and you know, because I go sometimes to with a Jap- Japanese group, and so I'm kind of trying to adapt a little. And uh, I think this is quite nice. So in a way, the, the, the idea there, when you bow at the end of the sitting, it's more that you're kind of, in a way, bowing to your own Buddha nature, where just practice, and kind of, you know, gathering that together, and bowing to just what you've done, and also bowing to everybody else in that moment. So if, in a way, for me, I think bowing, that's why we don't tell you, do this, do that, because I think it's, if you, this is something you like to do, you do it, and if it's something it does no meaning for you, then there is no point in doing it. That's why we kind of don't tell you kind of to do this religious thing. Then there was, ah yes, a question about the 45 minute sit and walk. How was it arrived at? And again, I think this is kind of, you know, trial and error. That some people, sit for an hour. In some school, I know even a nun, you sit an hour you stand, an hour you sit, an hour you walk, an hour you lie down. This is a Thai nun. Um, in some other school, like in Japanese, then they generally sit for 30 minutes, walk for 5 minutes. In Korea, they sit for 50 minutes, walk for 10 minutes. And in terms of the 45-45, I think somebody at some point thought this is possible. Most people can do this. <laughs> Most people can relatively sit for 45 minutes. Most people can relatively walk for 45 minutes. I think it's kind of a, the middle way. <laughs> not too difficult, but not too little. Because with the timing of the person, I think 30 minutes in general is easier. But some people feel they want to sit longer because they don't get going till the end of the 30 minutes. So, you know, Stephen prefers 45, I prefer 30. So that's why you have a little of the two. So again, this is the thing again, what people find works for them. Ah, then, then there is a, this one, I'm sorry, that will be a very short one. What does the 10 praise to the jewel at the heart of the lotus actually mean? I had to ask Stephen, and he said, it is Om Mani Padme Hum. So this is a mantra, this is a mantra which is very popular in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. As far as I know, this is a mantra which could be associated with the Buddhist advanced compassion. And after that, I'm sorry, you have to look it up in a book. This is not my speciality. (laughs) Stephen would know more about it than me. Then this is a question about the what is it. So, uh, the first one uh, is the question what is this focused on the whole situation of sitting here, hearing, feeling, etc., or can I also focus on specific things? Uh, so, what I would say uh, to answer that question is that in terms of the traditional Korean approach, then you just ask the question to the whole. And actually what you are asking
asking from the Korean point of view, you're asking what is this meaning, what is this mind? But not mind as brain, but what is the mind? And and so generally they see it as turning the light back onto oneself. Personally, it seems to me more helpful to actually turn it round, if this is possible, and to in a way kind of feel more as throwing the question in the whole moment. What is it? So in a way maybe seeing more the instead of seeing more the Buddha nature as inside, maybe seeing the Buddha nature more as the whole of it. That's the way I would kind of in a way generally recommend it. But what is interesting is that people can then go on to use it in this specific way and it seems to work. That if you have a certain thought or if you have a certain feeling, if you bring this what is this, but in the spirit of inquiry, not to really look for an answer, it makes you be with it in a different way. So I would say to the question, play with it. Sometimes ask it to the whole of the moment, and sometimes you can ask it to specific things. As long as, as it's pointed in the question, it's done in this not wanting a specific answer, but helping us to be more open into that moment, into the thing we encounter, instead of fixing and kind of isolating it. Which brings me to the second question, which I think is an interesting point. How will asking, what is it, really help me in my daily life? And it is true, at one level, to be sitting here asking, what is this, what is this, and you think, you know, this is weird, what a stupid question. But I would say, Again, it is a person asking why I introduce this question. It's because sometimes it is difficult for people to really kind of get a, an idea about this vipassana aspect, this inquiry aspect. Because we tell you, look at the impermanent. And often we feel that we have to look and find something special, some impermanent specially somewhere. But actually the impermanence is just to know, to notice, ah, the sound is gone. Ah, the feeling is gone. It can be as simple as that. But I think often we feel this is a little too simple. And that's why it seems that we kind of give a certain kind of uh, matrix in a way for the inquiry to use a question of that nature. What is it? What is it? And so, in a way, it helps us to cultivate what I would call the questioning muscle, which will dissolve a little what I would call the fixing habit. We're so used to fix, to, to see things in very one-dimensional ways. It's like this, it's like that, this is it. We see very kind of fixed. And I feel that by actually Again and again, I don't know, this is very difficult often for us Westerners to ask a question unconditionally, not looking for a specific answer, so you can pass to the next question. But really, what is it? What is it? It actually, for me, is to cultivate this wonderment, this perplexity, and I would say, in daily life, over time, it enables you to actually become more flexible, more creative, and to start to see more choices. 
But choices, I would say, in a healthy way, not choices as in vacillation. Should I do this or that? But more to see, ah, all those things seem difficult. How can I creatively engage with that? So you cannot bring this movement within yourself. How can I be with this? How can I be creative here? To me, that's where the what is it would help. To kind of help to dissolve the fixity and then enable more easily the creative aspect to come up. That's what I think would be helpful. Then there was a question which was, this is an interesting question. Uh, I found my own meditation practice is often dealing with difficulty I find hard to address in my life. I try to empty myself of anger or upset and always be compassionate to others, no matter how I am treated, but I still feel resentful at some level. Any advice? And I think this is this is being human. And personally, I would say sometimes, as I said before, Buddhists are not angry, but they're resentful. And personally, in a way, I would say it's better to be angry than to be resentful. But that's because I'm of a more hot temperament. Uh, Stephen might say different things, he's English. Uh, but it seems to me that, in a way, if you have feelings, in a way to really know them, to really feel them, I think it's quite important. If you, in a way, if you're angry, to really know that. And then, of course, over time, one learns over time. I mean, one can't always help oneself and one is irritated and says things we afterward regret or whatever. Or we're very happy to have said because it was so cutting. I mean, you know, I think everybody has their own way. But in a way, I think one has to be careful. I think it's important to, if we're angry, to know uh, the anger, to know why. Why? Because I think often what we do as Buddhists is that, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. Yes, yes, you know, I understand, you know, and yes, I mean it this way. And yes, yes, yes. So you're very compassionate, very understanding. And it's interesting because then I think it's very rational, actually. Very, we're trying to convince ourselves of something. Yes, yes, you know, I should not get excited. Yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, no, no. And so you kind of, in a way, I think stopping yourself from really feeling something. And then when you do this, you can only stop it so long. Especially if you have a little kind of fiery temperament like myself. And then if the opportunity is right, you know, you were kind of like a calm lake and suddenly, poof, you're not a calm lake anymore. And to me then, I, when I do this, I see how I kind of try to convince myself, but it's kind of rational, it's intellectual, it's not felt, it's not kind of really felt. And I think that's why, although one might feel compassionate and everything, there's still some resentment, there's still something which niggles. And at some point, something has to be talked about. So I think, although it is sometimes useful to be compassionate, I think again we have to see the different type of people. I think this is important to see that with some people we can talk. To some people if you have a little difficulty, but if there is enough trust and understanding, you can bring difficulty and you can say, look, 
I feel that way and I really something you know something has to be done something has to change or something and then if you talk together and if you listen to each other then actually things can move which would not move if you just feel I must be compassionate and then you feel resentful then there are other people which actually there is little you can do I mean you can try what you can do sometimes is try to understand where did they come from why did they do what they did I think that's the only thing you can do to understand where they come from because sometimes people come from such different places such different way of being in the world of seeing the world I felt that when I was in community sometimes there would be people and we would see the world in such different ways and finally one day with one person we had a kind of one could say a big blowout and then you know we decided to talk about it because we kept having this little thing and so we decided to let's talk about that and so we each presented our point of view to the other and each listened to the other and I discovered what she thought which I would have never thought she would have thought <laughs> but it was very good for me to hear how oh, that's what she thinks that's the way she knew it and after that it was much easier to be with that person we still did not see eye to eye but it was much easier and then there are people where the only thing you can do is actually try to avoid them and what I would say is have compassionate to be compassionate from a wide distance <laughs> and to accept that you know it doesn't work it you know what can you do you have to accept sometimes I think you have to accept and in that moment I think you have to be more compassionate to yourself and compassionate to yourself is to see this is not going to work because sometimes with our Buddhist principle we think we should love everybody I don't think we can love everybody I think we can respect everybody we can care for the humanity of everybody but we cannot get on with everybody this is I live enough in community to I think uh, think it is so I mean you might say it is not so but possibly you have a better experience than me but that's what I would say sometimes actually the compassion has to turn to ourselves and I think when we turn the compassion to ourselves and I think the resentment can go and also to see that the person also could be very likely suffering but this is I think a very difficult subject and it's something which is in a way a challenge to anybody to anybody's practice in their daily life to be with this feeling with this emotion with the outer circumstances and in a way to in whatever way we can creatively engage with it and to really see it as an exploration I would say so that was all the questions on the paper.